Isaiah chapter 48, and we'll read from verse 1. Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. For they call themselves of the holy city, and stay themselves upon the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have declared the former things from the beginning, and they went forth out of my mouth, and I showed them. I did them suddenly, and they came to pass. Because I knew that thou art obstinate, and thy neck is an iron sinew, and thy brow brass. I have even from the beginning declared it to thee. Before it came to pass, I showed it thee, lest thou shouldst say, Mine idol hath done them, and my graven image, and my molten image, hath commanded them. Thou hast heard, see all this, and will not ye declare it? I have showed thee new things from this time, even hidden things, and thou didst not know them. They are created now, and not from the beginning, even before the day when thou heardest them not, lest thou shouldst say, Behold, I knew them. Yea, thou heardest not, yea, thou knewest not, yea, from that time thine ear was not opened, for I knew that thou wouldst deal very treacherously, and wast called a transgressor from the womb. For my name's sake will I defer mine anger, and for my praise will I refrain for thee, that I cut thee not off. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted, and I will not give my glory to another? Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I also am the last. Mine hand also hath laid the fountain of the earth, and my right hand hath spanned the heavens. When I call unto them, they stand up together. All ye, assemble yourselves and hear. Which among them hath declared these things? The Lord hath loved him. He will do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be on the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Yea, I have called him. I have brought him, and he shall make his way prosperous. Come ye near unto me, hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was. There am I, and now the Lord God and his Spirit hath sent me. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldst go. O oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments, then had thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Thy seed also had been as the sand, 
and the offspring of thy bowels like the gravel thereof. His name should not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. Go ye forth of Babylon, flee ye from the Chaldeans. With a voice of singing declare ye, tell this, utter it even to the end of the earth. Say ye, the Lord hath redeemed his servant Jacob. And they thirsted not when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow out of the rock for them. He clave the rock also, and the waters gushed out. There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. Amen. May the Lord bless to us this reading from his word. We have learned in these Old Testament passages always to be ready to look beyond the immediate context of the prophet's words and to search the horizon, as it were, for the messianic dimensions that these prophecies contain, to seek for signs of the coming of the Lord Jesus and the things that he would accomplish. It would be another 700 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and the incarnation of the Son of God. And yet as Isaiah wrote these things and as he anticipated the events that would occur during that period, we find that there are many indications granted to us that there is an expectation built up in the hearts and minds of the elect of God, of the remnant people. So that we are learning to see Christ foreshadowed in these promises and prophecies that Isaiah gave to the Old Testament Jews. We are learning to discern in God's dealings with the houses of Israel and Judah patterns of his dealings with his people in all ages and particularly in the Gospel age. Now, in doing this, we're, we're not dabbling in guesswork or speculating beyond what we have any reason or justification to do. Nor are we back reading into these passages what we want to see. And our chapter today, I suggest to you, is a prime example of this. Because here we find Isaiah again speaking of Cyrus, who in a few hundred years from the time that this was written, so there was still several centuries, about 150 years or so, uh, before this uh, Babylonian captivity would, would be coming to its end. Here we find Isaiah speaking of Cyrus, who would deliver the Jews from captivity in Babylon. And yet Isaiah using names and language and employing 
terms and terminology that go beyond a mere man and go beyond the actions of an earthly deliverer. As great as Cyrus was as a king and as significant for the Jews as this deliverance was, we discern, however, that Isaiah is speaking here about divine intervention with eternal implications. He's speaking about good news of a transcendent nature. Not simply for the people of Judah or the people of Israel or the people of that region. Not simply to do with Jerusalem and Babylon. But of a worldwide dimension. He is speaking not simply of one city in a tiny country. But of a spiritual kingdom. For a people throughout the whole world. And a people with a heavenly destiny. And here we read of one who is the first and the last. A known covenant title. Assumed and taken by the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 22. To show us that what was here being spoken of by Isaiah in chapter 48. Has Reference and relevance to the Lord Jesus Christ in his saving capacity and in his mediatorial role. He is the first and the last. This was his name. And here we discover also a reference to God describing himself as the Lord thy Redeemer. Which is, once again, an office peculiar to the Lord Jesus Christ. Who engaged in this covenant capacity with his Father to be the Redeemer of his people. Who came into the world for that purpose. Because he came to redeem. He came to save his people from their sins. He came to be their deliverer and did indeed succeed in doing so. He obtained redemption by his death. So that the Apostle Paul, speaking of uh, the, 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 the work of Christ and his shed blood, says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. It's from the book of Galatians. And it is when we see the Lord Jesus Christ in these prophecies, it is when we see and discern him with the eye of faith and his deliverance and his salvation typified in these promises of God to the Jews that the true glory of Isaiah's message becomes apparent. And its meaning comes alive, not only for one limited, restricted generation in Israel in 700 or 500 BC, but for 
every child of God in every gospel generation all the world over. Isaiah reminds this people of God's goodness and mercy and grace and patience. He reminds them that it comes to them not because they deserve it, but in spite of their sin and their idolatry and their treachery and their wickedness. He is preaching grace to a graceless people. God calls these people transgressors from the womb. You see, it's not just saying that they had sinned against God. It is showing something of their nature. It's a phrase implying not only sinful acts, but our inherently sinful state. Our depraved nature. And yet, nevertheless, the Lord is telling these people that he is resolved to deliver this people by redeeming them from captivity and sending them a deliverer to restore them to their home in the person of Cyrus. And I think there's a twofold purpose here. I think there's an element to this chapter that we've not entirely seen before and I want to just touch on that lightly as we pass over. Throughout these chapters we have seen how Isaiah's prophecies, his prophecy of redemption, was designed to be a comfort to the remnant people who looked for Christ and yet who feared that God's punishment of Israel would in some way revoke the promise of the Messiah. There was a concern in the hearts of the Lord's elect that because of the sin of the people, maybe God would not fulfill his promises to send them a deliverer as had been spoken of throughout the history of Israel and the fulfillment of the covenant promises. And so Isaiah, in telling the people about impending judgment, was also sent with a message of comfort. We read about that. A few chapters ago, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. The glory of Israel shall be revealed, notwithstanding this judgment. The glory of Israel shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. So that the prophecy was designed to reassure God's elect. But there's another side to it as well. The Lord also knew that in the hardness of treacherous hearts, his glory, his delivering work would be discredited by attributing it not to him, but to the idol gods of the unbelieving Jews. <laughs> Such was the treachery of this people that they would say, 
Well, we knew this was going to happen anyway because our gods told us about it. Because our idols, they're the ones that sent Cyrus in order to deliver us from captivity in Babylon. And they would give the credit of God's delivering work to their own molten images. So to them, God is also speaking in this passage and he is saying, I have even, it's in verse 5, I have even from the beginning declared it. I'm telling you this beforehand so that you will not be able to say, oh, it was our idols that told us. The record is written down in the book. I have even from the beginning declared it to thee. Before it came to pass, I showed it thee, lest thou should say, my idol hath done them, my graven image and my molten image hath commanded them. Such is the perversity of sinful men and women that even God's goodness and mercy is distorted and perverted in order to elevate man and denigrate God. And I want to make a little application there because I think that is exactly what happens in so much modern theology and doctrine today. The scriptures tell us that God has supplied a full and free salvation. And yet men take that deliverance of God, that great work of God's effectual grace and omnipotent power. And they misapply and misconstrue. They insist on their free will to make it effective. Or again, despite the children of Israel having had every conceivable advantage given to them over many years, their rebellious nature remained unchanged. And what do we find in our modern pulpits but preachers talking up common grace? But let us see that here we are being taught that every good and every perfect gift comes from God. Outward blessings given by God to men and women merely are used to pervert our own ideas and give vent to our biased nature and to be applied to our own wicked ends. If God is good to people, what do they do? They take his goodness and they pervert it and they satisfy their own lusts and their own desires and they throw back in his face no gratitude. It is not common grace, but sovereign, saving, efficacious grace that we need. Because that is the only grace that will change a sinful heart. And it is the grace that we absolutely require. Let us not fall into the temptation of thinking that human nature is better than it is. And that's not to say that all men are as wicked as they could be. 
for reasons of conscience, for reasons of law, not all men are as evil as they could be. Nevertheless, when it comes to spiritual matters, men are dead, dead, dead in sin. They are transgressors from the womb. And apart from saving grace, they have no hope and are without God in the world. But Isaiah doesn't leave his message there. Praise God there is hope in Jesus Christ. And Isaiah knew the gospel of God's grace and the message of everlasting peace by a worthy Redeemer. He tells us of Christ the Messiah. He tells us of the child that would be born, the son that would be given. He declares to us here in this chapter, the one who says of himself, I am the great I am. From first to last, the covenant making, covenant keeping God. Verse 17 tells us that and it's, 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 it's a powerful verse. It says, Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldst go. Now this is a wonderful gospel verse. We, we, we must not see this in the narrow scope of Isaiah writing to uh, an Iron Age people. This has a scope which transcends the gospel age. It speaks of the Lord our Redeemer. It speaks of the Lord our righteousness and justification. It speaks of the Lord our teacher and the Lord our leader who leads us in the way that we should go. And all of these have gospel implications. These are verses full of gospel truth. Isaiah has lifted his eye beyond Babylon, beyond Cyrus, to speak of an everlasting redemption by the blood of a worthy substitute. It is God himself in the person of his dear son who is our redeemer. It is Christ the Messiah who came, who died, who rose again and who has ascended into heaven, who is here in view. Remember Zacharias, we've been reading about this in, in Luke chapter 1 and 2 over the past few weeks, but Zacharias was looking back on the book of Isaiah when he spoke prophetically again um, in, in, in the early chapters of, of Luke and said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. He wasn't speaking about Cyrus. He was speaking about Christ. Furthermore, John tells us that the redeemed in heaven, they sing to Christ, Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. This is a worldwide view 
There is now had in this gospel age of Christ's accomplishments. And this redemption, it justifies unholy men and women. It clears, it cleanses, it purges, it purifies sinful hearts and consciences. It reconciles God to men by bringing in a righteousness that no human works could ever attain. But there's more even than thinking of Christ as our Redeemer. Not only does the Lord effect this great atoning work of grace, but he teaches his people how to profit by it and in it. And he leads us in the way that we should go. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means this, that Christ teaches us the gospel. Let it be said and let it be categorically understood. The gospel is not something that we do. It is something that we learn. The work of grace is a covenant work settled in eternity between the persons of the Godhead and transacted in time upon the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a finished work. But it isn't a secret work. It's not a hidden work. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ in this chapter expressly states, Come ye near unto me. Hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was. There am I, and now the Lord God and his Spirit hath sent me. So what is the Lord saying here? Well, he's saying this. He's saying, as is said in Hebrews 10 verse 7, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the, the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. The Lord Jesus Christ has done everything that is needful for the redemption, the uh, uh, justification, the sanctification, the reconciliation, the deliverance of his people from their sin. He has done it all. It is a finished work. And now, says Isaiah, he teaches us what this means. That's why we call the Lord Jesus Christ or we, we recognise the Lord Jesus Christ as having a prophetic office. Just as Isaiah taught the people of the Lord in his day, so the Lord Jesus Christ comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom, prophetically declaring and revealing what has been done. He came to fulfil the terms of the covenant of peace, to secure God's people and to redeem his elect. And this accomplished, completed work he teaches to his people by the preaching of the word. That is what we are about here today. We're, we're, we're not looking for responses. We're not looking for reactions. We're not looking for hands. We're not looking for, 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 for us to do something in order to make something effectual. We are here to dwell and meditate upon what the Lord Jesus Christ has achieved and accomplished. 
Paul says in Romans chapter 10 verse 17, Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It is this that is the means by which the Lord reveals to his people and draws forth our faith and trust in him. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the Redeemer, declared in this verse. He is the teacher, declared in this verse. And he goes on, Isaiah goes on to say that he is our leader. He leads us in the way that we should go. We're still in verse 17. Some people wish to be led by the law. But why go there? When we can be led by the Lord. He leads us as our good shepherd. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And what does the Lord say? He says in, 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 in John's gospel, My sheep hear my voice. He calleth his own sheep by name, and he leadeth them out. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ teaching us what he has done in the gospel and leading us into his truth day by day in the preaching of the word. It is the Lord that teaches and leads his own flock. He calls us to come with the powerful command of effectual grace. He makes us willing in the day of his power. He says, come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says in verse 12 in this chapter, Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called, my called people, my separated people. He says in verse 14, All ye assemble yourselves unto me and hear. The Lord doesn't just send a preacher. He gathers a congregation as well. And you and I are called to be here under the sound of his word in order that we might be taught and learn and led of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. Here's the last thing that I want to say today. The Lord teaches us his gospel and he leads us in the way that we should go. And as he does so, he provides for all our needs on the path we are called to walk. Verse 21 says, They thirsted not when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow out of the rock for them. He claved the rock also, and the waters gushed out. Isaiah is speaking about the experience of the, the, the Lord's people in the wilderness in the day of Moses. But he's drawing on these images, these, these, these pictures, these symbols, these, these events to show that the Lord cares for his people. And I want us to know that. 
Not only has the Lord accomplished our salvation, not only does he teach us it in the gospel and lead us in our daily lives to understand and see his hand in our lives, but he provides for us at every stage in that process. And he is doing that for you and me as we lean on him, as we trust in him, as we depend on him. We find these things to be so that people were doomed to die in the desert had he not supplied them with the refreshing waters from the rock. They were doomed to starve if he had not supplied the manna and the quails. But he did. And as he provided then, so he will provide for our needs now, whatever they may be. And I know we've got supermarkets these days and we don't have to find our bread lying on the, on, 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 on the ground in the morning. But he will provide nevertheless. As we have needs, the Lord will provide as he provided in the wilderness until they reached the promised land, so he shall provide for us until we make our way through this wilderness world. And I know that it's hard to believe because our faith is weak, but there's not a blessing or a trial, nor a joy or a sorrow, nor a good experience or a bad one that the Lord does not use to teach us his way and the path that we should walk. Everything that happens to us in our life, in our walk, in our learning is for our good. Mark my word, if the Lord has begun that good work in us, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 15 here, I have called him, I have brought him and he shall make his way prosperous. The redeemed of God find peace with God. We speak of the covenant of grace. Well, it's the covenant of peace as well. Peace with God is our inheritance in Christ. Atonement and reconciliation are the great accomplishments of the cross. Our peace is as a river, full-flowing, plenteous, continuous and refreshing. All our righteousness is by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and all our peace is as deep and wide as the sea. These things the Lord has promised to do for us, not because we deserve them, but for his own glory, for his own honour, for his own name's sake. He can no sooner fail us, his elect, than he can deny himself. And so, like pilgrims heading to the holy city, we sing the song of the Lord. We sing the song of the redeemed. And the song of the elect is a song full and free of the salvation once given, never withdrawn, never lost. The Lord will supply all our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. The Holy One has redeemed his people. He leads us forth from captivity in a bountiful supply. 
Out of the rock that is Christ flows cleansing blood, transforming grace, perfect righteousness, full, free salvation and every good and perfect gift. For life and in death and for all eternity. And that's worth singing about. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Amen.